are merry listening in. Welcome to your Christmas special of the British Broadcasting Century podcast. It's Paul Carenza here. I don't actually care if you're listening at Christmas or not. Listen in June if you like. You will still find the same wealth of historical broadcasting goodness right here. We're telling the origin story of British broadcasting the very slow way. And we are nothing to do with the present-day BBC, by the way. We are a sole enterprise. They know not of us. Right now in our timeline, we're pretty much paused on the cusp of New Year 1922, going into 1923. That's how Season 2 ended. Next episode, Season 3 begins with the explosion of the BBC's workforce in their first offices at Magnet House as 1923 gets underway, which leaves us in limbo land with a few specials for you. We couldn't let Christmas go unnoticed. So this time we are looking at the 12 Airplays of Christmas, a rather tenuous title, but it means that our guest and writer and podcaster and fan of Christmas telly, Ben Baker, can guide us through Christmas in more recent decades. I'd say especially the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s. Yes, rather recent for the British Broadcasting Century. But it will be having touchstones across the entire last hundred years, from the Queen's Speech to Top of the Pops via Noel Edmonds, Morecambe and Wise and... Noel Edmonds again. You can't get away from Noel at Christmas. Welcome to the British Broadcasting Christmas across the whole of this last British Broadcasting Century. Fire up the jingle bells. Hello, hello. This is Paul Carenza calling. This is London Calling. Hello, hello, ho, ho. Santa Carenza here. Hope you're doing well. You know that I love Christmas and Christmas broadcasting more than most. Yes, I wrote a book on it, Hark, the Biography of Christmas, available now. Get in touch for signed copies posted to you. Ideal Christmas gift, others may say. Well, they don't, so I'll say it instead. Links in the show notes, paperback, ebook, audiobook, all available, although I can only sign the paperback. I have not yet learned how to sign an audiobook. But you know who else has a book out about Christmas past? It's a man who knows his Christmas telly. Delighted to welcome to the podcast, writer and podcaster, author of Ben Baker's Christmas Box, 40 Years of the Best, Worst and Weirdest Christmas TV, among other books, and podcasts including Ben in the Basement. It's Ben Baker. Hello. Uh, it's a good job that I am the author of Ben Baker's Christmas Box, otherwise you'd just be really weird. That's true. You do, you, you do like your name in the title of these things, don't you? But that's well, the way I, to do it, isn't it? I suppose it's kind of like how I write books, because I've written a few books about Christmas TV now, and I basically, I, I can't be as knowledgeable as some don't have access to the same information that, that some do. There are authors I truly admire, like Louis Barth, or Ian Greaves, and, you know, they really get into the heart of something, whereas this is kind of my take on things. Okay. And so it's a history of television, the people and programmes and just the, the kind of weird tropes that come out of 40 years of British Christmas TV. Yes, the last four decades of British TV. So we'll be largely dwelling this episode in more recent years than we are used to. On this podcast, of course, we've dwelt largely in radio land, especially in the early 1920s. And we told you the story of the first BBC Christmas on last year's Christmas special, episode 20. Do go back and catch that if you haven't already, or if you'd like a reminder of Reverend John Mayo, Peter Pan on Boxing Day, and Uncle Arthur giving the first drama written for radio, The Truth About Father Christmas. Oh, and trust me, I've been looking for a copy of that script of The Truth About Father Christmas. Doesn't exist. It's nowhere. Wouldn't it be nice to find that script and recreate the first drama written for radio. Well, if you have a copy, 
or can find it, let us know. Maybe that's next year's Christmas special. But as for this year's Christmas special, we'll be leaping around Christmas broadcasting of the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. But if you prefer your radio older than that, trust me, I won't resist the odd interruption of my chat with Ben to bring you some choice trivia of earlier Christmas broadcasting gold, frankincense and uh, myrrh. Just to finish the metaphor. TV does seem to go a bit weird at Christmas sometimes. It just goes well, off Well, yeah, that, absolutely. Yeah. It takes advantage of sort of the looser schedules and there's certainly a lot of remit filling at Christmas. Yeah. You know, if you remember, obviously, you'd think there's a lot of opera <laughs> or highfalutin yeah. kind of stuff. On, nice, and nice. you realise it's a lot of box ticking, basically. Excellent. <laughs> well, Christmas broadcasting has turned out to have certain tropes, certain familiar, ever-repeatable types of show. I asked Ben Baker what his perfect ingredients for Christmas broadcasting might be, and he happened to name 12-ish. What a great Christmassy number. A classic Christmas Day broadcast. What you need, what are the ingredients you need to make good Christmas telly? What people always imagine, I guess, when they think of a a class. Certainly, this is a BBC One Christmas, because we know BBC Two will be full of films and, again, more art stuff, you know, a nice aria or something, you know. And, and other channels do other things, but we, we don't have to concern ourselves with those. No, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So let the countdown begin. The 12 airplays of Christmas. Tenuous title again. I'm sorry. Let's open door number one. Ho, ho, ho. So what, uh, what would you say is our first ingredient? What do we need to kick us off? Well, I mean, I, I, I'd have to just do a nod to kids stuff because I think most of us over 15 without children or indeed standards rarely see anything <laughs> before midday at Christmas. Right. Over the longest time, the BBC would start up about half nine at Christmas and ITV mm. about an hour or so later. And then it wobbled onto where, and, you know, there were some religious services or carols. Uh, and then we get to sort of the first big programme. Well, I, I call it now disgraced 70s celebrities in hospitals. Right, <laughs> but, okay. But visiting the children, so oh, yes. visit, okay. uh, a traditional Christmas morning visit to a children's hospital was a huge thing in the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we started with Meet the Kids in 1961 with Max Bygraves, and he went to Great Auburn Street Hospital. Um, people like Frankie Howard did it, Leslie Crowther, Ray Allen, and then someone with the surname Harris did it also for several okay. years. Right. Jo- joined by Coogee Bear. And then that gets taken over by a stocking full of stars, which is basically the same thing. Here's a, a traditional one. Uh, it's Michael Aspel and Hope and Keen in 1973 from the National Children's Home in Harpenden with Blue Peter, Roy Castle, Charlie Caroli, The Goodies, The Osmonds, Tom and Jerry, top soccer stars, uh, and Walt Disney, apparently, which is impressive wow, considering he'd been dead for uh, seven years at that point, I think. It's impressive work. Well, I can tell you, I, I was actually in Great Ormond Street Hospital a lot as a kid, and so Look early at- 80s, and I don't think I was ever in for Christmas Day. I think I always, there was always that risk I might be, but I was always in, like, I was in for like six weeks at a time, but off like Christmas Day come in, hmm. and I would just about get out in time. We had the art, we had Arsenal, Arsenal came around the entire football team and gave us some footballs. That was lovely. Nice. Um, and we had some people dressed up as a children's character that I can't even remember what they were anymore, but they were there. <laughs> it wasn't, it was like sub Womble. It wasn't quite Womble, it was sub Womble, you know. So, yeah, um, copyright it, free. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Yes, the Christmas special has certainly now become a thing, but it was never a given that there would ever be Christmas special broadcasting at all. Ahead of the BBC's first Christmas, there's a mid-December 1922 issue of our favourite magazine, Popular Wireless. 
and a front-page article read, Christmas arrangements. I was surprised to learn from the broadcasting company that so far no special arrangements have been made for any extra features in the Christmas broadcasting programmes. Maybe it is a little early, and it is to be hoped that before the advent of the festive season, enlarged programmes will be announced. I trust the BBC will realise the immense possibilities that such a season holds for the furtherance of the popularity of wireless in the home. Of course, the BBC only six weeks old at that point, and they did ultimately offer a few choice festive surprises for that first Christmas. As I said, the children's play about Father Christmas, first radio drama, plus religious sermons, there were ghost stories, a bit of dance music up north. But notably, the trade magazines saw the priority as being to push radio sets as must-have items that Christmas. The perfect present. That popular wireless front page again. You who have a wireless set are aware of the pleasures it gives, of the fascination to be experienced by listening in to the voices and musical items sent out by the broadcasting stations by radio. This will be Britain's first radio Christmas, and you can help others to enjoy to the full the true spirit of the season by inviting them to listen in on your set. And so, perhaps for the first time, appreciate the pleasures of a wireless concert. In this number of Popular Wireless Weekly, many well-known firms have established repute are offering attractive presents in the shape of broadcasting receivers. You can give no better present than one of these instruments, which will provide endless entertainment for your friends, and their friends too. Urge your friends to buy a set now, for remember, this is Britain's first radio Christmas. Okay, so once, so once the kids have been dealt with, once have they been dispatched, the kids, kids TV in the morning, uh, what sort of thing are we going to get from them? Well, it's kind of weird because that slot kind of ebbs out uh, in the mid-70s uh, after Rod Hull and Emu sort of take it for a bit and then they just shove films out there. And there's not really an event thing before Top of the Pops until... Two ho ho ho. Noel Edmonds up the telecom tower, which ah. is not what it was called at all. But <laughs> no, it's essentially that, though, yes. It I was It that. was originally yeah. the live, live uh, Christmas morning dish or whatever you know, that sort of things it depended on the year basically they had various different ones and these would be for those who don't remember basically noel edmonds would be at the top of is it still called the telecom tower it's the bt yeah, tower. the bt tower essentially the big tower in sort of north part of central london yeah yeah it used to be where they did a lot of things like they did comic relief mm. from there and stuff and it would be a very technically intricate live broadcast with lots of reports around, and uh, the much-missed Mike Smith would be out in the oh. helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> because if it's null, helicopters are never far away. Of course. Uh, and I think 1985 is the ultimate one. It's 125 minutes long, and it's the one I'm sure you've seen on uh, outtake shows, Fergal Sharky, not been able to hear his own... Uh, oh, that one, yes. But basically, trying to do a mime performance. Suppose it's the world's first in-flight pop performance and you little thief starts oh. <laughs> And he's just going, I don't, I don't know anything else. And the best thing is, is that when it cuts around, Gary Davis and the Crankies are there. Oh. <laughs> and it just makes it this most very, very surreal uh, yeah. experience. And I love that in your book, you've actually got an entire chapter called The Ballad of Noel Edmonds. And that's yeah. what a yeah. beautiful and chapter the title that is. Because he is very much for a, a generation. He, mm. he was there. Obviously, there were these shows. And then Noel's Christmas Presents, which went for a decade and yes. then came back. And I don't think many people remember it came back on Sky post Deal or No Deal revival in his career. Ah, Noel's Christmas presents. Continuing that Dickensian notion of charity at Christmas. A scarf round our necks, a top hat, and a Christmas jumper. 
It doesn't really go together at all. But Ebenezer Edmonds doling out the gifts to the needy. Yeah, that's something that he would continue with deal or no deal, I suppose, in what looked like proper Christmas boxes, even if that was a rather different non-festive show. Which brings us to... Three ho-ho-ho Dickens. Yeah, we've mentioned on previous episodes how Percy Edgar, favourite announcer at the BBC's second station in Birmingham, right back in 1922, he brought Dickens to the radio for the very first BBC Christmas. Percy Edgar was known long before radio for bringing his Charles Dickens to the Birmingham stage, so he just took that performance to the wireless when he started there. Dickens on the radio was a hallmark of early radio Christmases through the 20s. It was classic, it was Christmassy, and it also overlapped, I think, with that Rethian notion of improvement for the listener or reader. Both Dickens and Reith wanted the audience member to leave a better person than they were when they tuned in or opened the page. A Christmas carol is a very Christmas Eve thing, but you get it a lot. You get a lot of versions of it on Christmas Day. Yeah, Charlie Drake did it in 1963. <laughs> Mr. Magoo in 1964. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, there's an animated version with Michael Redgrave in 1972. Uh, and a BBC Two adaptation in 1977. A friend of the show, Paul Hayes, has set himself the challenge to watch every adaptation of A Christmas Carol. He's got a blog, watchingthecarol.blogspot.com, and it's got the full works of that particular enterprise. Links in the show notes, of course. For example, the very first TV Christmas in 1936 did have a Christmas Eve version of A Christmas Carol scheduled in amongst a live televised Christmas party. There was also a demonstration of carving turkey. Ernest Shackleton broadcast on that first TV Christmas with a lonely Christmas Arctic. There was a seasonal tour through the Empire introduced by one of our favourite old radio pioneers, first Deputy Director of Programmes, Cecil Lewis. But as for that first televised Scrooge, though, Bransby Williams was to star. Indeed, it looks like it was actually only to feature Bransby Williams as a monologue and no one else. He was reviving the role that he'd played on stage and in a short film eight years earlier in what was possibly, according to Paul Hayes, the first sound version of A Christmas Carol. Now, Bransby Williams had played Scrooge on the radio for a few years, but as for 1936's TV version that was scheduled, Paul Hayes has discovered that it never actually made it to air. You see, Bransby Williams fell ill with bronchitis. So it's on various broadcasting history websites as being the first televised A Christmas Carol. It was in the listings, but it never reached our screens or our grandparents' screens or, or the few who had telly at the time and could pick up the fairly weak signals from Alexandra Palace. TV then ceased for the war. When it came back, Christmas 1946 finally saw a televised Christmas carol in Britain. By then, though, the US had beaten us to it. And that's pretty thorough, so kudos and thanks to Paul Hayes, who has watched more versions of A Christmas Carol than I've had hot dinners. Hot turkey dinners, with all the trimmings, of course. Oh yes, Paul Hayes has watched a lot of Christmas carols. I hope he makes uh, uh, it to going live Scrooge A Christmas Sarah from 1919, because that's got uh, <laughs> the four ghosts are played by Roland Riveron, Norman Lovett, Susie Blake, and Normski. <laughs> Wow, there's a combo. Yeah. There's a combo. Yeah, I, want, I, want, I want Paul to get in touch now and tell us if he's touched that one. That would be a lovely. Oh one no, to, he, to I, I really hope so. And uh, so yeah, you get all sorts. Uh, Oliver, the, obviously the, yes, the musical do. Oliver. That was the big Christmas Day film in 1976. Uh, but also less known in 1982, that Mr. Quilp. I don't know if you've seen this, but no, no. it's a, basically a musical sequel to the old Curiosity Shop with Anthony Newley. Uh, oh, okay. And it's yeah, it's 
very strange, but anything with Anthony Newley in is worth watching, I think. Yeah, and he's got that slightly, again, a slightly, he does sound like a Dickensian character of some sort. He's got that it does. Kind of slightly it does. chipper Cockney attempt. Yeah. Oh, he fits perfectly into yeah. <laughs> that world. So, yeah, totally. Yeah, and also any opportunity to do a bit of singing and dancing, you know. Yeah. No question. Hey, speaking of singing and dancing, what's next on the agenda? God, we're slick. Look at this. Look at this. It's like we planned it. Four. Ho, ho, ho. Top of the Pops, obviously. Ah. It's weird how Top of the Pops, I think last year, obviously 2020, there was a huge uproar when they said, we don't really have the capacity to do a Christmas Top of the Pops. Shocking. And it was like, oh, no, we've got to have it. Even though you know for well most of those people will not watch it. Mm. Yeah. And it was on, I think, at half eleven. It, it it was quite early. It's definitely it's long out of its two p.m. comfortable slot, which is where it spent most of its time. Although it started on Christmas Eve, the first one in nineteen sixty four, which must be one of the most exciting years in pop in general, uh, especially because you know the Beatles were number one and everything. Mm. But it started on Christmas Eve, and it wouldn't get the Christmas Day uh, appearance until after. And even then, it was at ten thirty five p.m. Top of the Pops is, I don't know, for a start, I don't even know why they cancelled it in the first place, but at Christmas, it does feel yeah. like you round off the year. The problem was, when they cancelled it, they replaced it with, uh, what's it called, Looks Like Friday Night, I oh think it dear. was called. Yes, that sounds like, I think it had a sound. Sounds plane. like, sound, yeah, yeah, no, that, that would make that would, more sense, really, wouldn't it, for a music programme. Yeah. Uh, it smells like <laughs> Friday like, Night. like, let's not go there. <laughs> it's a synesthesia spectacular. It is. It is. Five. Ho, ho, ho. Oh, but look at the time. Is it three o'clock already? I think it must be three o'clock, which means I, it's time for something particular. I'm standing. I'm standing no, well as we done. speak. Excellent. I'm standing. I hope, I hope you realise. Through one of the marvels of modern science, I am enabled this Christmas day. 1932, live from Norfolk in a box room under a staircase in Sandringham House, a makeshift radio studio was created for King George V. To speak to all my peoples, Throughout the empire. He was rather nervous about it. He had a message written for him by Rudyard Kipling, and he had a tablecloth laid down on the table to stop his nervous tapping fingers. As he sat down in his favourite wicker chair, the seat collapsed underneath him. God bless my soul, he muttered, his first words in front of the microphone. I take it as a good omen that wireless should have reached its present perfection at a time when the empire has been linked in closer union. And the notable royal messages continued. 1936 was then speechless because Edward VIII abdicated just before Christmas. 1937 saw George VI, that's uh, famously depicted by Colin Firth in the King's Speech, completing his first Christmas message and increasing the warmth of the public towards him. He had this stammer, it was rather tricky for him. And of course, the clouds of war were coming in. So his message of hope against the shadows of enmity and of fear were well received in a fragile world. There was no speech in 38. In 39, he spoke with a poem suggested for him by Princess Elizabeth, now our Queen. God knows by Minnie Louise Haskins. And I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go out into the darkness, put your hand into the hand of God, that shall be to you better than light and safer than a known way. As for the Queen's Christmas messages, she gave her first in 1952, her first televised one in 1957. Happy Christmas. 25 years ago, my grandfather broadcast the first of these Christmas messages. 
today is another landmark because television has made it possible for many of you to see me in your homes on Christmas Day. My own family often gather round to watch television as they are at this moment. And that is how I imagine you now. For some viewers, there was an amusing crossed signal over the Queen's words as a police officer was heard to mutter, Joe, I'm going to grab a quick coffee. I very much hope that this new medium will make my Christmas message more personal and direct. It's been on Christmas Day since 1957, uh, which was live the first two years. Uh, I presume that she stopped doing it live so she'd watch what was on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's a good point. Not that there is anything on the other side because well, she dominates. I think there was that idea as well that if you pre-record it, you can send it around the empire and then yes, Australia yes. can have it at three o'clock their time rather than middle of the night and you know, that sort of thing. It's inevitable that I should seem a rather remote figure to many of you, a successor to the kings and queens of history, someone whose face may be familiar in newspapers and films, but who never really touches your personal lives. But now, at least for a few minutes, I welcome you to the peace of my own home. Some interesting dates. Oh, yeah. A uh, first out on location. Mm -hmm. message was 1975 the first uh, subtitled speech by c fox was 1979 wow. yeah yeah look impressed look technology <laughs> yeah and uh in 1986 uh david attenborough took over oh, producing yes. it. people seem to forget him doing anything else well, in fact, he ran BBC Two as well for all those years. Everything. Yeah, he's absolutely. All this. 1997 was the first time anyone other than the BBC made it. Uh, ITN got added into the uh, the cycle, and I think Sky have been added now. They're making it currently, and I mean the, the talk was it was retribution for the now very controversial Dana Panorama interview, but. Well, then, yeah. even this Christmas, uh, William and Kate have removed the rights for the BBC to broadcast their carol service. Now ITV will be doing that instead um, because of a, a more recent panorama that uh, yeah. uh, drove a wedge between the brothers. So it, it goes on, doesn't it? <sighs> yeah, it does. It does. I think it's best to just move quickly on. That it's possible for some of you to see me today is just another example of the speed at which things are changing all around us. Six. Ho, ho, ho. We're about halfway through. Time for a Christmas commercial break. Yes, back by popular demand from last episode. Some commercials from Popular Wireless magazine 1923. Last episode, we turned some of these into verbal radio-style ads. They were rather well received by you, dear listener. Now, these were printed when the BBC was two months old and the wireless boom was, well, booming. You, dear listeners, sent in your version, and I roped in my kids as well. So before we hear my children, you know we mentioned Paul Hayes earlier. Well, he's taken a break from watching every version of A Christmas Carol to help bring to life advertisements from popular wireless magazine like this. Don't let violence in advertising rush your judgment. For your protection, insist on a comparative demonstration before you purchase. It is all we ask to prove the demonstrable superiority in signal strength, purity of tone, simplicity in operation of the Christophone. Registered. 
PMG broadcast receivers sold by all leading stores and wireless agents. All Christophone receivers are exclusively fitted with the Laticone tuner, the only tuning coil which actually builds up and strengthens the incoming signal current and thus enables us to claim a 50% increase in signal strength. Such is the reserve power of the Christophone, registered type 33, two valves, that four invisible wires stretched across the ceiling of any room on any floor, in any house, in London, Birmingham, Manchester, is sufficient for use with six pairs of headphones, while with a PMG aerial it is guaranteed for 100 miles. Price £15, including all royalties, Christophone crystal receivers with Laticone tuner, prices from £3, 10 shillings and... Well, why would you put zero pence on the end? Demonstrations daily from 5 to 10 p.m. Please note change of address. The Christophone Manufacturing Company Limited, formerly trading as Wireless Supplies Company, 16 Wells Street, Oxford Street, London, W1. Telephone, Museum, 1664. If you like cultural history, Christmas and podcasts, you're like a Paul Carenza podcast. Yes, it's the other podcast I've been running for years. Normally it's interviews with people like Miranda Hart, Tim Vine, Sally Phillips, Reverend Richard Coles and many more. But the latest episode is just me, counting down the world's favourite carols and secular popular music from the hit parade. Yes, the Pogues rubbing shoulders with Silent Night. Join me for a Christmas countdown on a Paul Carenza podcast. The link is in the show notes. For the first time, a wireless Xmas. Christmas 1922 is the first time you'll be able to really give a novel present. A wireless set. A present in which fascination and enjoyment never fails. We offer a complete range of wireless receivers from simple crystal sets to cabinet deluxe. All TMC wireless receivers are fully approved by the PMG and give maximum results from the British Broadcasting. The illustration shows a TMC crystal set number two with a patent Everest crystal, which needs no adjusting. £5.17 and six each. Come and choose your present today. If you cannot call, four particulars will be sent on request. The Telephone Manufacturing Co. Limited, 68 Newman Street, W1. Phone Museum 5581. Branches in every large town. London, London Manchester, Manchester and, and Birmingham, Birmingham are broadcasting now. TMC makes wireless worthwhile. Thank you, Paul Hayes. Thank you to my children. Those are the ads from 1923. So now back to the programming for a typical modern Christmas Day broadcast with Ben Baker. And what's this? I've just been handed in the corner of my pub an extended bleak soap Christmas special. Doof. Seven, ho, ho, ho. EastEnders, obviously, you know, run over a dog for some light relief, you know, yeah. that sort of thing for them. The most interesting EastEnders, actually, was not on Christmas Day, but New Year's Eve. Because in 1987, they decided to show it up to the Big Bang bongs. They all uh, hover around the telly in the Queen Vic to see the New Year in. Oh, then yeah. it cuts to the live feed, <laughs> and ah. then it cuts back. Yes. And okay. it must... It was actually ripped off a little bit by Coronation Street a few years later, who did the same, but 
it was Alf and Audrey sitting down to watch the Queen. Right. Uh, and they sit there and then uh, they cut in the Queen's speech. The extended soap operas and the, uh, the always gloomier than ever, you know, Dirty Den saying, that's it, Ange. You're getting yeah, well, that, I mean, that's one of the, another one of the biggest view, most watched yeah. things as well. You know, it's huge. And is it just there to cheer us up, just to make us all look at the telly going, well, we thought our family was bad. Look at I this think lot. it is, yeah. yeah. I, I genuinely think that's why. Because apparently, I can't remember when but i seem to recall there was a year where they decided to lighten it up a bit eastenders on christmas day and it wasn't as popular people want the the well the drama well if it's drama you want then films christmas films yeah i mean post queen for a long time you used to get a circus uh, Billy Smart, you uh, uh, on the BBC, and then a bit of a pantomime, invariably starring Terry Scott. But uh, <laughs> the, you don't really get a big film after the Queen until True Grit in 1974, and then The Wizard of Oz in 1975, uh, and they kind of start the tradition of the big Christmas Day film, really, for the BBC. The other channel, less yep. good, but the first <laughs> Bond. Yeah. Do you know which the first Bond to appear on Christmas Day was? Oh, no, I don't know. Let me think. It's going to be, I reckon it's going to be a Roger Moore one, early Roger Moore, uh, Live and Let Die. Uh, Diamonds are forever, actually. Okay. In 1978. And it didn't do that well because ITV just struggled to beat BBC for a long, long time because they had such an amazing bulletproof schedule. Back then, of course, ITV was... Uh, in regions more than now mm-hmm. it's not a mass you know of i mean there still are regions but it, it's not the same as it was when we were growing up obviously so it's very different programming on different depending on where you are in the country yeah i mean I, in my new book i have tried to track every major christmas day film from 1960 to 1999 and until about 1976 every itv region shows a different film right and it's like it makes your head spin <laughs> it's like <laughs> just agree yeah yeah. Uh, whereas BBC, straightforward, no nonsense. Films, you know, used to be a big appointment to view uh, the big epics and things like that on Christmas. Mm. But now they've got access to films a lot more with the streaming services and the like. Um, it's, yeah, it's maybe I a bit less special. A, a friend of mine complained last year when the BBC schedules came out and went, oh, kids have seen all that. And it's like, well, mm. I, I don't know what you, what you want. Yeah. <laughs> because exactly, they yeah. can't compete. And basically what ends up happening is that film becomes a huge uh, part of an arsenal for a channel in the sort of 70s, early 80s. But then they start filtering away as the feature-length sitcom becomes a thing. Nine, ho, ho, ho. Or indeed uh. feature-length anything. Famously, you've got uh, the, the the Only Fools and Horses, John Sullivan. He made the feature-length sitcom its own event. Yes, yes. So To Hull and Back is the first one in 1985. Uh, although we should give special note to the most depressing thing ever put out on television on Christmas Day, right. which is 1990's Rodney Come Home, a bleak exploration of Rodney's <laughs> failing marriage. Oh, yeah, I think I recall that one. There is a, a particularly bleak d- discussion between Dell and Rodney, as I recall. Yeah, and, and that's the same day as yeah. there was bread and birds oh. were feather. So, you know. Yeah. Laughs, laughs are high. They've taken a leaf out of the soaps book, clearly. Well, it. yeah, it is. Yeah. And that, that's sort of where this, your soap had come. But, mm. uh, but the first one, actually, is Last of the Summer Wine. Okay. Uh, in 1983, they did a, a 90-minute special called Getting Sam Home, which is entirely on film, presented without a laugh track. And it's, it's a really lovely, <laughs> it's a really, really funny, lovely 
film. It's been reduced. I, I love Vic and Bob, but the three mm. blokes in a bathtub thing really <laughs> yeah. killed people's, yeah. uh, you know, uh, interpretation of what Last of the Summer Wine was. You know, Last of the Summer Wine, I've, I've never liked it. I never enjoyed it. But I've got a funny feeling that in my retirement, in my dotage, I'm going to rediscover it and go, actually, there are hundreds of hours of joy right here for me. I've got, a, I've just got a funny feeling it's going to have that sort of moment for me. Well, it's Roy Clark, and he's you a know. great writer. I yeah. mean, good Lord, he's put exactly. 90-something, and he's still doing still he's... open all hours. Comedy has always been a big part, even mm. though, as you'll know for well as, as a professional comedy writer, opportunities are less on the ground now when it comes to yeah. the slots, certainly. There's not a lot about. You see why they want to go and put films on uh, all, all through mm. Christmas, because they're film, it, you know, it's, it's expensive to make these big sketch shows, variety shows, sitcoms, and... Uh, uh, yeah, and is there as much demand for it? I don't know. I mean, we, we have all, the audience sitcom is pretty much gone. We've got not going out, Mrs. Brown's boys. I think that. Oh, and maybe Upstart Crow whenever they still do that. Uh, but apart from that, you know, um, goes wrong. Sure. Oh yeah, play goes wrong. The more recent, but that's yeah. about it. Yeah, it, it does feel like you need um, you need a reason now to do it in front of a live audience. Like the play that goes wrong yeah. is about a performance in front of an audience. Yeah, Mrs. yeah, Brown's it's boys, USB, talks yeah. to the audience. And this 2021, there's a Christmas special of Not Going Out on Thursday, the 23rd of December, 10pm. does indeed have a reason for a live audience. We've got a Panto special guest starring Jason Donovan. Yes, I helped write this episode. So if you find a bit funny, then let's say that that bit was mine. If you didn't find it funny, it was probably someone else who wrote that bit. Which brings us a sidestep away from the sitcom special to... 10. Ho, ho, ho. The Christmas Variety Show. Come on, Morecambe and Wise, The Two Ronnies. Little and large, hail and pace. And we don't seem to have found replacements for them, which is a bit sad. Yeah, it feels like it needs fostering a bit. We don't really have a sketch show on TV much of the No, just... no, not at all. I mean, BBC Three makes some good ones, but they're made on a budget of threepence and a smile, you know. There's no there's no money in it. And as you say, it's an expensive proposition mm. for potentially nothing. The big year for viewing figures unsurpassed was 1977. Specials from Mike Yarwood. He had the highest viewing figures for any Christmas Day show at 21.4 million. Morecambe and Wise are still very respectable, 21.3 million. Britain's largest single TV audience of all time was Only Fools and Horses 1996 Christmas special. 24.35 million people watched Del Boy and Rodney finally become millionaires. And if you're thinking EastEnders had more viewers in 1986, well, they did, but it was over two viewings. Only Fools trumps EastEnders for the at-the-time audience. I think the last really big ones would have been Victoria Woods shows. Her all-day breakfast is a particular favourite. Mm, and mm. French and Saunders uh, a little bit. But even there, oh, yeah, they, yeah. you know, French and Saunders still feel very alternative, don't they? They don't feel... Well, also, they stopped doing what they're doing. They're doing a bit on radio, actually, at the minute, but they're not doing as much on, on TV, of course. And, and why would no. they? Now, in their 60s, they want to kind of hand over the batons. But but who too, really? It's, well, that's um... it. But the problem is there are a lot of good performers out there, mm. but they're, so they're not getting the, the opportunities, which is a, you know, it's a shame. I, it I hope. Shame. I hope when sort of production gets back to mm. an even keel, we'll start to see more. 2020 was the year of let's do a quiz yeah chuck it together <laughs> see what happens you know because that's what we did basically in you know in, in real life like if i were doing this archetypal schedule now there'd be like three mm. quizzes in it yeah very true very <laughs> and true. that's fine because it's easy you I don't want just, anything um, too taxing there's another th- but we're, it's a weird phenomenon that i've, I've just spotted uh, uh, last couple of years on on telly as well over christmas that they they try out uh, they like pilot a new quiz show or game show 
Um, hmm. But they always get a host from the other channel. So what you find, like Philip Schofield and Holly Willoughby fronting this one-off weird pop game show part that will never go anywhere, but it's on BBC One. Or you get mm. um, Hugh Edwards on BB on ITV fronting this thing, and it's almost oh, yeah. like it's a way to just chuck out some weird stuff that they think, you know, no one will notice that this BBC name is over there or this ITV name is over yeah. here. It's a format that won't work. But hey, it's Christmas. Let's chuck well, yeah, it all together. Well, yeah. obviously it's now a series, but blankety blank with Bradley Walsh, who obviously is on the BBC as well, but traditionally an ITV face. Yeah. I love Blankety Blank. Uh, one of my heroes is Les Dawson. Absolute mm. heroes. Mm. And yeah, it didn't quite work for me. The new no, one, but, but I, I'm not the sort of person who wants to... Even though I've written these books about old things, I'm not rose-tinted glasses. I'm not everything was better then. Mm. You know, because there's lots of great stuff around at the moment. Television is... The fact that anything appeared at all in 2020 is incredible. Yeah. Considering, you know, you still got all the big programs. And it's impressive work. And, you know, a lot of other channels just went, eh, films. <laughs> Eleven. <laughs> we go into late evening night of our Christmas day then. And I suppose it's it's less of a Christmas day thing, more of a Christmas Eve thing, but the ghost story. Is anything? Yeah, I mean, it was worth it was worth mentioning. Christmas night would always have some sort of there's always a bit of a tie-in with uh, fear, I think. I think fear and Christmas go I think it's winter, dark nights, that kind of it represents what's going on outside the window, I guess. Uh, ghost stories have been broadcast in Britain since broadcasting began. Christmas 1922 on the wireless had ghost stories from the provincial stations. Wasn't that long, of course, after the Victorian era. The turn of the screw, MR James Dickens again. Christmas and the ghost story was not far from its heyday. Plus, of course, that effort to convince people to turn from fireside to this new wireless box in the corner meant, yeah, the fireside ghost story found a place on that box, whether it was a radio or a TV. I personally still love that first Christmas Radio Times cover, the first colour cover as well. A family with their backs to the fire turning to literally look at their radio. They just had to wait a few years for the pictures. So you get your ghost story for Christmas, and only two of them actually appeared on Christmas Day, Lost Hearts and The Ice House, both of which are absolutely wonderful. Uh, but the stone tape, Nigel Neal's stone tape uh, play, went out on Christmas Day on BBC Two in 1972, and that is one of the most perfect, this, this genre of hauntology that's appeared. Ooh. Well, nowadays, uh, I guess, uh, Mark Gatiss is, is doing his bit. Very much influenced, definitely. Mm. A, a lot of it tends to tie into religion. I think as well. You get a lot in a lot of creepy churches and that sort of thing. Twelve. Ho ho ho. There's usually after that a little bit of a five minute morality piece sort of thing. Not necessarily wholly religious, but uh, it starts in 1987 with the gospel according to Saint Luke. Just a five minutes mm. of that. I recall seeing in the 90s. I think I saw Craig Charles do one with like a CGI background of Bethlehem or something like that, and it was just. I think they, they get a few sort of celebs in the Shepherds or the Wise Men or something like that. But it's often like one o'clock in the morning. It's sort of an odd time to do essentially a nativity play. Tuck it yeah. away. Anyone who is awake has probably had a few too many sherries by that point. Of course, religion was there on the BBC from the word go. From Reverend John Mayo's first Christmas sermon, from John Reith's insistence on radio being the nation's minister, the effective shutdown of BBC radio on Sundays, and of course that let in competing European and pirate radio broadcasts and eventually shudder pop music. <laughs> what would Reith say? I'll be doing some more research into the history of religion on the wireless in 2022. I will keep you posted on that. As for morality talks on Christmas Day in the modern era, 
Ben Baker. One of the most interesting ones is 1997's I Hate Christmas 2, which is which has got Samuel West and Peter Capaldi in it. And uh, yeah, basically Samuel West is the ghost of a World War One soldier. And it, yeah, it's all very strange. Although not as strange as The People's Nativity in 1998, which oh, is yes. uh, read by Tom Jones, Barbara Windsor, Alan Titzmarsh, and Des Lynham. <laughs> Celebrities are never far away from any of these uh, listeners, no, are they, really? I, I, I know, obviously, you, you are a man of faith yourself. And I don't, do, 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 are you bothered about representation on Christmas I'm, Day? I'm, I'm, when Tom Jones and Alan Titchmarsh get their mitts on it, that, that's it. That crosses a line for me. That's, that's uh, it. It's amazing. like, do, do you really want it to be showbiz? I, I always think if these things, if the stories are being told in some way or there's a message, not proselytising, bashing people over the head with, the, you know, saying join this faith. But if it's if there's a message of, of peace and goodwill and something to yeah. uh, encourage and, and boost us, then why not? Whether it's read by Des Lynham, whether it's Christmas gifts around a hospital by Michael Aspel, whatever it is, it's Christmas. Yeah, and I think that's the true spirit of Christmas. And, you know, (laughs) other than banging a film out for people to fall asleep to, I think that is a pretty much archetypal Christmas day for you. Well, look at that. I mean, I'm impressed. I count about 12 or 13 ingredients there, which happens to be the exact number of ingredients of a Christmas pudding. So uh, Is that that really? Interpret that how you will. There you are. I'll be honest with you. I'm I'm more about the custard. I'm a custard man. (laughs) Just give me the custard. Just give me the jug. You can have the Christmas pudding. (laughs) Custard on a Christmas pudding? I can't believe it. Oh, is that that me being northern? Shocking. Shocking. Gravy. Christmas pudding and gravy. That's what we need. (laughs) Mushy peas, you you know. (laughs) Uh, Well, thank you for running, running through all those for us. And your book, once again, Ben Baker's Christmas Box, 40 Years of the Best, Worst and Weirdest Christmas TV is out now. Uh, how would we get that? What's the available routes to purchase? I mean, there are a number of places you can get, you can get Lulu, Amazon, you can get direct from me. Uh, but if you go to linktr.ee slash Ben Baker Books, or find me on Twitter at Ben Baker Books, you can basically message me on there and all my podcasts and things that I keep firing at people without so much as a request. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we will put the link to that in the show notes of this episode. And all that remains to say is Merry Christmas viewing. Ho, ho, ho. And a Merry Telemus to each and every one Absolutely. of you. Thank you, Ben Baker. Details on the show notes of both his book, Ben Baker's Christmas Box, and of course my book, Hark the Biography of Christmas, all, both of these are continually available and make marvellous stocking fillers. Complete the set by both. Next time, New Year's Day, 1923, we stampede into Magnet House for the start of the BBC proper and into season three. That will be a dozen or so episodes as we immerse ourselves in January to April 1923, that period after Reith had arrived, the staff grew and grew, and in the words of the first deputy programme director and, of course, the first televised Christmas broadcast party host, Cecil Lewis, pandemonium reigned, so he wrote in his book. We'll find out more next time. So all that remains to say is, uh, well, Merry Christmas, I suppose, and thank you for listening and for supporting us through another year on the British Broadcasting Century. Next year, 2022, it's going to be a big one. It's the BBC's 100th year. They will be celebrating, of course. So will we. Stick with us. We are going to bring you, dare I say, far more of the marvellous details than you could ever find elsewhere. Auntie Beeb just simply couldn't devote all of the airtime to this full story if they wanted to. So join us. Help share this story by sharing our posts on Facebook and Twitter. Secure us some new listeners. You can find us on those social medias. Rate us, review us. You can support us on Patreon, of course, by all means. Like Naomi Kikowak over in Canada. Thank you, Naomi. She's one of several keeping us afloat, and we thank you. 
And when I say we, I mean me. Me, thank you. Anyway, find BB Century online on your social medias. Say hi. Be good to know that you are there. Come and know me better, man, as the ghost of Christmas present said to Scrooge. But of course, here we're all about the past. And so as we go into Christmas, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone. And as Noddy Holder observed, it's Christmas. Yeah, that will mean nothing in Canada, I'm pretty sure. Just to explain, Noddy Holder was... Uh, uh, well, this is about broadcasting, not 70s glam rock. That'll be for another podcast. But as for this one... The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. Original music is by Will Farmer. Help us on Patreon or Coffee.com. We're not made by the present-day BBC. We're just here to inform, educate and entertain. Thank you for listening. Do join us next time for Season 3 of the British Broadcasting Century. Merry listening. In.